1: So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway.
0: Turn up the fun with Crunch.
3: I was told by some people initially that I couldn't possibly write a successful show about Vikings because they were the other, uh, because they were the people who came and broke into your house at night and, and raped and pillaged. And uh, I said, "Well, you know, you think that that's the, that's a cliche, but but how about thinking about them as family people? I
4: that was Michael Hurst talking to us about how he brings history to our screens. a producer and screenwriter whose work includes The Tudors, The Borgias, two films about Elizabeth and the current smash hit history drama Vikings. He spoke to our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, about his work on Vikings and creating history dramas more generally. And please do be aware that the interview does contain some plot spoilers for the Vikings series.
5: I'm here in London with Michael Hirst, an award-winning screenwriter and producer who's written many hugely successful historical television dramas and films, from the Tudors and the Oscar-winning Elizabeth to Vikings. It's lovely to be talking with you, Michael. Thank you very much. Um, So perhaps we can start by talking about one of your most successful shows Vikings and if we can talk a bit about what brought you to the Vikings because you're obviously six seasons in now and a hugely successful show but you've said that when you started writing it people didn't necessarily think it was going to be that successful so um, why do you think it has been such a success and what brought you to them?
3: Uh, many years ago, I uh, was writing a film script about Alfred the Great, and Alfred the Great fought against the Vikings, in fact, fought against the Sons of Ragnar. And um, that's the first, my first real immersion into uh, the Vikings, and I did a lot of reading at that time, uh, and was fascinated to discover that a lot of uh, my, uh, what I thought I knew about them was wrong that I knew nothing about their attitude towards women, which was much more progressive than most other societies, that they were a democratic society, that their uh, engineering skills, their boat building skills were were uh, phenomenal. Lots of things that I hadn't known, because we are all brought up on cliches about the Vikings, that they're brutal, uh, mindless, um, savages. Um, They were certainly, when they needed to be brutal, there's, there's no question about that, but they weren't savages. Um, so there is that thing that, is, that often works when you say to people you think you know about something actually you don't know anything and we're going to, to, to show you that, that you don't know anything at another level none of these shows none of these television dramas will ever work unless you care about the characters so um, I was told by some people initially that I couldn't possibly write a successful show about vikings because they were the other uh, because they were the people who came and broke into your house at night and, and raped and pillaged and uh, I said well you know you think that that's the that's your cliche but but how about thinking about them as family people you know that that mothers and fathers love their children and husbands love their wives and you know and that I'm going to tell the story of a family okay but this family happens to be a viking family and uh our main Viking, at least at the start, Ragnar Lothbrok, is not interested at all in rape and pillage. He's interested in exploration, and the Vikings had the technology for that. They had these amazing boats at the beginning of what's called the Viking Age. And he also, there was overpopulation in Scandinavia at the time. He wants to find, he's a farmer. When we first meet him, he's a farmer. And he wants to find good agricultural land for his folk, which is one of the things that did prompt uh, the Viking voyages uh, around the world. Um, and they were also traders, of course, they, they were on the Silk Road. There's lots of things that have, you know, that people are finding out about them now. Why uh, it's actually struck such a chord, though, I, I, I honestly can't tell you. When, when I was researching, uh, and this is many years ago, the Alfred the Great project, And people asked me what I was doing. I said, I'm working on Alfred the Great and the Vikings, they went, okay, that's interesting, you know, when, whenever it was in uh, 2011, 12, I told them that I was going to start writing a a, a, a TV series about Vikings, they said, oh my God, really? How fantastic, you know? And then suddenly there were Viking exhibitions in in museums all around the world you know that there was this this extraordinarily new uh an explosion of interest about about vikings and i can't account for that but uh, it's in the zeitgeist
5: if we can talk about uh, ragnar lothbrok then mm. the main character in for much of the series um He uh, is a historical character. He is grounding in real historical record, and I know that you looked at the sagas. So perhaps for people who might not be familiar with those sources, could you explain what they were and where you might find Ragnar?
3: Well, there is a a saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, but the truth is that um, Ragnar is the first great Viking hero to emerge from the myths of myth and legend. There is still some controversy about whether he was real or not. We do, however, know that his, several of his sons were real, that uh, Bjorn Ironside were, were, sailed around the Mediter- Mediterranean, was, was chased by Barbary pirates. We know that the, the leader of the great army went to England to revenge their father's death, was that the leader was Ivor the Boneless, and who wouldn't want to write uh, stories about um, a character called Ivor the Boneless? Um, so, I, w- my historical advisor and I. Justin Pollard, thought that on balance uh, Ragnar uh, did exist. His name does occur in several accounts, and of course these accounts would have been written by Christian monks in France and Ireland and England, and his name crops up, often in different places at the same time or whatever. So there is uh, substantial evidence. Uh, And in any case, even if he didn't exist, it was necessary that he did for the for the story for my saga that I was going to tell um, and it was it was always going to be the story of Ragnar and his son so I, I you know I wasn't um, myself concerned at all that I was going to kill him off even though I knew that he was very popular had become a hugely popular character. Uh, there was some disquiet among some of our American executives but uh, But the the most extraordinary thing happened that um, the the episode after he died, the ratings went through the roof. So, but of course you could imagine that what people thought was my God, one of the main characters is God. What happens next? You know, what do they make of this? And and uh, so, um, and then we were fortunate that we cast uh, an Australian from a farming family in the outback uh, as Ragnar. You know, because I. Didn't believe that. Again, we come down to cliches. You know, Vikings were shouty, long-haired, sort of rather grubby, hippie types. You know, who just bludgeoned everyone. And uh, uh, and but they were Scandinavians, and it's not my idea of Scandinavians. Who I think of, generally speaking, as rather quiet, intelligent, introverted. Often, and I said, I want that my Viking hero to be those, to have those qualities. Totally to confound absolutely the cliche of uh, what people think of as Viking, and uh, we went down to the wire before we cast. Travis he uh, he sent a self tape in from his kitchen in in the outback, in which he didn't pretend to be a Viking. Whereas lots of the other self tapes people go, I am Viking, you know, <laughs> and he was very quiet, and uh, and and he spoke with a lot of long pauses, which I was very impressed by. So. Uh, we, we 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 back to hunch, and we cast him, and uh, then we cast Lagatha, um, because well I like her anyway, but she she's a, a black belt uh, in taekwondo. And she had to be persuasive, she had to be convincing as a warrior figure.
5: I'd really like to talk about the character of Legatha because um, I think it's fair to say you got a bit of flack, I think, from people mm. who said, oh, there's no way that yeah. women would have been involved in it, they wouldn't have been fighting, they wouldn't have been warriors. But yeah. there was a potential discovery um, last year which may have vindicated this in some way.
3: Well, it wasn't a new discovery. This uh, there's a, a, a Viking tomb, which is the, it's always been regarded as a quintessential Viking warrior because um, all his weapons uh, were displayed around him in the grave, and um, and it was just taken for granted. Of course, it was a, a it was a man, and it's been I don't know how when this was dug up. It could have been a hundred years ago, but uh, and it's it's in Scandinavia somewhere. But uh, there was a new curator at the place where, where, that, uh, where he is, lies, and uh, she got rather interested in the, in the hips of the skeleton. And did they brought in another woman scientist, actually, who did DNA tests, and lo and behold, uh, he is a she. And uh, she was very definitely a warrior. She must have fought in the she World, She must have earned herself a huge reputation to be buried in, in that way. And uh, having, you know, f- fought for that idea, I suppose I felt, uh, I felt very vindicated. I s- noticed, I don't look at social media on the whole, but uh, people draw my attention to it occasionally, and there were still people posting things like, no, it's still, you're still wrong, women aren't strong enough to fight. It was unbelievable, the misogyny that's still out there is just uh, incredible.
5: And as you've already mentioned, um, something that drew you to the Vikings was um, how they treated women in their society. And what could you um, explain a little bit more about what you found about women's place in Viking society?
3: Well, I was, um, from my original research and reading, I was astonished to find that women could own property, they could divorce their husbands, uh, they could rule, uh, and they would, they could fight and did fight uh, in the shield wall with their husbands and brothers. And um, and this idea that they were uh, the attitude towards them was more emancipated than in certainly in Anglo-Saxon societies and in uh, Frankish French societies of the time was very startling to me because you know here is an uh, essentially still Iron Age culture and you assume that over time people get more cultured but here we are you know. That by the time uh, William the Conqueror, who was, you know, descended from uh, our great uh, Rollo, uh, invaded England in 1060, he took away whatever rights women still had in that, in that period, you know, obliterated them. And, and one has, has to say, I don't want to be controversial about this, well I don't mind, being <laughs> much, but that uh, after the Viking Age probably lasted about 400 years, and by the end of that period, All Viking societies, all the Scandinavian countries had uh, been Christianized, And unfortunately, it was a feature of Christian society to remove uh, rights from from her women.
5: Well, you mentioned Frankish society there. Mm. And one thing I was very interested to find was that you resurrected a number of dead languages Mm. for the show. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how you um, go about looking at a language that doesn't exist anymore?
3: Uh, well, we get academics to do it. We, we get people who are more qualified than we are. And, uh, of course, we started with... Um, the, the Vikings would have spoken Old, Old Norse and uh, the Saxons would have spoken Anglo-Saxon and, and a lot of other people would have spoken Latin. The church is the language of the church. Uh, so we needed... Uh, you know, in, in order to be as authentic as we could be, we needed to hear some of those languages. We didn't want subtitles all the way through, but we wanted to start the first time you met any of these people. They would speak in their own language. And so we, again, it's Justin Pollard, my historical advisor, uh, got in touch with uh, his academic contacts, uh, many of them in Cambridge, I think, linguists and so on, and said, this is what we need translating into Anglo-Saxon into Old Norse. And the detail that went into it was quite extraordinary. So they, the academics would sometimes squabble amongst themselves about re- the regional accents of Anglo-Saxon. So an Anglo-Saxon guy living in the south of, of uh, England would speak differently f- still from someone in the north. And, uh, and then when the Vikings, uh, I think in season three of our story, go to Francia, France, and attack Paris, which is... Uh, again, a historically recorded event, uh, we needed, we wanted to find out what the people in Paris were, spoke at that time, the Franks. And it turned out that Frankish language is closer to German. It also hasn't been heard for hundreds of years, heard or spoken for hundreds of years. So, you know, the academics had a whale of a time figuring out what that sounded like. Um, and so I think we've... Um, You know, I think we've resuscitated or helped to resuscitate about four or five dead, essentially dead, dead languages. And uh, that's been another great journey, actually.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mitt Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
5: So if we can talk about The Real Vikings, which Mm. is a documentary which will follow season four. Um, So why was the need to go deeper?
3: Uh, Well, it wasn't my idea. (laughs) Um... Of course, the, the History Channel and and A&E are documentary makers, and, and and that was their principal activity for for years. Vikings is their first um, is their first uh, long long form drama. I was um, pleased that um, that this was going to happen. Um, you know, Vikings is based uh, on on research and and. Uh, uh, it's as authentic as we can make it for as a drama. Uh, at the same time, I was slightly concerned that perhaps when they started to talk about to talk to the really uh, serious people in, in the world the, the uh, uh, Scandinavian professors, the archaeologists, the uh, the people who really know about Vikings, that perhaps. Uh, they would show up m- many of my mistakes and uh, misleading storylines uh, in the show. Uh, and so when I inter- was first interviewed for the documentary, I think I probably got overpassionate in <laughs> my uh, description of, of what I was trying to do and why I was doing it and, and that it was as authentic as we could make it. And I did have a historical advisor, don't you know? And um, because I think I felt defensive. Uh, but actually... Um, joyfully, um, uh, they uh, the documentary has, uh, by and large, validated the show by taking the cameras to the real sites uh, around England uh, and uh, around Scandinavia. Um, so I relaxed a little bit about that and enjoyed it and, and, and took part in some of it and and uh, um, uh, and I do think it's, um, it's changing people's perceptions, uh, even and especially in Scandinavia, of, of the Viking Age and what the Vikings were. Uh, and so both the show and the documentary are part of that essential rethink of, of the Vikings and their culture and their gods and their influence on, on, on the world. So it's been um, an, an entirely positive experience.
5: If we can talk a little bit more generally, um, because I know, as, aside from the Vikings, you've obviously written on the Tudors, um, then on, later on Elizabeth I, mm-hmm. and um, next you have Mary, Queen of Scots, and projects on the Caesars as well. Perhaps we could talk a little bit about the challenges of um, balancing historical fact and, and then fiction. I know you say you walk, you take the details and then you walk with them and develop characters from there. So what's your process and what's your feeling about the balance between the two?
3: Well, everything I write begins life as reading and research, and because I spent, I think, so long in universities, I was in universities for about 12 years, and uh, so the actual research uh, is a a major pleasure for me. I enjoy it. I I have an open mind when I do that, and I'm waiting for characters and storylines to emerge from the material helped again by historical advisers by a friend of mine who is an icelandic writer who provides a lot of viking material viking detail um, and it's 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 a, a way of trying to construct a saga that that so it begins in in reality or, or perhaps what passes for reality historians don't always tell, tell you the truth um because they don't know it, uh, but then I have to I have to compose it into drama, you know, because otherwise no one would watch it. <laughs> so there have to be storylines, and the storylines uh, have to be uh, uh, exciting enough for people to, to to keep watching. But in that process, it doesn't mean that you can't learn things at the at the same time. I'm not I'm not writing these historically based things to, to be educational. But if, having watched the shows, it drives people back to the sources and the the historical record, that's great. I think that's absolutely fantastic. So um, I I have another thing that's very important to me is that what I try to do is to connect the past to the present. I always hated those uh, BBC costume dramas because they were about people who had nothing to do with me or my family at all you know they were they not they dressed in different ways and they spoke about things that weren't particularly interesting so right from the uh, early days my, the early part of my career especially when I got to Elizabeth and so I wanted to connect that to especially to the experience of women contemporary women so for example Elizabeth uh, the director and I thought for not as an iconic queen, but as a young woman in a really tough space who's inherited her father's business, and there are two other big businesses who want to take over the, her business. OK. Uh, so that immediately creates some reality. For the, um, I don't think it then gives you the, um, the liberty to, to tell anything, to say anything. I don't think, you know, uh, I don't like Britannia because it, it, it is purportedly to be about the Romans in Britain and it's nothing at all to do with the Romans in Britain. But uh, I, I think that my stuff has always got to be tethered in, in some way to historical reality. Uh, but, I, but, I can, but I try very hard to find ways of connecting it to the tissues of, of contemporary life.
5: You talk there about seeing Elizabeth as a young woman, which is a, a guise that we might not have seen her mm. in for a time and I believe that you might be approaching Julius Caesar in the same way um, it was very recently announced that your next project will be um, with Martin Scorsese and the, the, on the Caesars, mm. um, so could you explain maybe um, what you think the popular conception of Julius Caesar is and why why you want to challenge that?
3: Well I don't think I've ever seen a representation of Caesar on stage or on screen where he isn't a middle aged guy uh you know a, a balding middle-aged guy and i don't know i don't know why that is but i suspect it's because again it goes back to that the fact of nobody being able to connect one culture to the so if you're dealing with romans they have to be very serious uh they have to be different though you know so, Julius is what a great, you know, iconic figure. He must come over. There's, there's totally serious, and of course, we're always affected by what how Shakespeare represented him. But if you actually read the history, if if you read Suetonius or, uh, it's much more about a young guy, who uh, starts off in in, in huge danger and huge jeopardy, um. And becomes, in due course. The most famous man who ever lived on earth, and and to tell that story is is mind blowing. You know, to even be try and begin to tell that story is is, uh, is mind blowing. But you have to start. You can't. I don't want to start with him having achieved something and being a senator and all that. You know, because we think of the Romans as middle-aged guys and and uh, patricians and things. No, he was a young guy, like I was a young guy once, but you know, he was in a different context, in a different reality. Uh, but he still had lots of st- stuff that young guys have. You know, he had vigor, he had dreams, he had, uh, you know, he was c- brave. Uh, uh, so that's, you know, so yes, so we are, uh, we're going to concentrate quite a bit on, on the Caesars as, as, as younger people than we've seen them before. Uh, with more vitality, uh, carving out an empire.
5: How, how do you think that your show, um, you know, Six Seasons and Going Strong, has helped the reputation of Vikings as these marauding plunderers?
3: Well, I, I, I'm happy to say you know, and I hear that the, the, the whole reputation of the Vikings in their home countries in Scandinavia has been transformed. And it must... And I've been told and it's partly due to... Um, their representation in, in Vikings, um, because um, obviously at the end of the Viking Age, all the Scandinavian countries had been Christianized, and the Christian countries as they then became um, had a very uneasy uh, feeling, I think, about their heritage, some of their heritage, about the Viking heritage, because you wouldn't, why would you want to align yourself with murderers and rapists? Uh, but now they feel, uh, I think, liberated to, to go and reclaim their wonderful heritage, and uh, you know, as as boat builders and and uh, as pagans, and you know, so. Um, so and and that has happened around the world. You know, it, isn't it astonishing that, um, of course, the show is very big in places where you would expect it to be big, and uh, uh, G- Germany, Canada. Um, America, wherever, um, uh, but also in Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know what that's about. I don't know, but it's it's great. It's it's fantastic, and it and I hope, I hope that the general view of Vikings has changed.
5: And I hope we're not getting too far ahead of viewers who might be on seasons four and five now. But season six takes us to Russia. Yeah. Um So what is known about the Vikings in Russia, and and how they. What their communities were like there? Uh,
3: well, uh, Russia is called Russia because it was founded by the Rus Vikings and uh, whose um, capital was Kiev uh, and Novgorod. Um, and when we go there in the show, it's still a very young kingdom. Uh, it's only one generation on from the founding of uh, of Rus. And uh, but it's a Christian culture. It um, it's not long been a Christian uh, culture, so there are still um, vestiges of their earlier paganism. Uh, it's a slightly more um, what we might call civilized culture. In, you know, the the the, the decors, the buildings are uh, uh, you know have been built by better better builders than the Scandinavian models, but. Uh, um, what it does, taking you know, we know that the Vikings went there okay, to to and, and uh, as they went on the Silk Road, uh, but what it does for the show is revitalize the show. We take we take the show to to new places. We know the Vikings went there. We take the show there. So we're doing new builds. We're building new sets. We're we're, we're casting new actors. We're and um, it just lifts everyone. It, it's a, it's a wonderful tonic for everyone to take them to. Uh, so now we have Kiev on the back lot, as last season we had York, the city of York. And, uh, um, and, and the amount of work that goes into those kind of constructions is absolutely amazing. Staggering, staggering. It looks wonderful.
5: And will we see the Vikings get
4: to America?
3: we have to wait and see. That
4: was Michael Hurst. The Real Vikings documentary series is currently airing on Tuesday evenings on History UK, following episodes of Vikings Season 4. And the second half of Vikings Season 5 will be available for viewers on Amazon later in 2018. Okay, so that's about it for today, but please do join us on Monday when we'll be talking about Ruth Ellis, the last woman to be executed in Britain.
0: Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.